All right. Welcome everyone back to Dissecting Popular IT Nerds. And today we have Justin Smucker on the show with us from AFNI. A, you guys do, I mean, really, really a large contact center, which excites me. So I'm not going to, to try and be selfish here and talk about that all day. We're going to steer away from that. And what I want to do first, Justin, is A, introduce you to the show. But you, last time when we were talking, you were talking about really a huge disruption in the industry right now. And I'm going to let you speak to that in a moment. But first, tell me what was your first computer and how did you get started in anything like technology? So, well, thank you for the introduction. Hello, everyone. Um, My introduction to computers probably happened a lot later than most. It was actually when I first walked into college. Uh, I went to a DeVry University outside the Chicago area. And I literally changed my major the day I walked in and signed up for classes and went into telecommunications management. That's awesome. No one does that. (laughs) Everyone should do that. (laughs) Everyone should do that. But uh, most people going to college, like you said, actually, that probably is very, uh, very typical. Most people going to college because you have to go to college because that's what we're told we have to do as a society. and, and, And that's what we do. But anyways, so what made you change right away? This is a really cool story. I really honestly, um, it, it, something just spoke to me, you know, waiting in line, you know, seeing all these other kids and stuff. And, you know, I mean, it was, I was signing up for electrical engineering otherwise, which, you know, another great field, but, um, you know, as there's a billboard for all the different, you know, majors that you can sign up for and there it was. And was there anything, you know, anything that was like, man, I just love computers. I remember this from a kid or I remember this that sparked my interest. Like, is there anything that's like nostalgia or anything like that? I mean, it's, you know, my grandparents had a Commodore 64, but, you know, that went, you know, a long ways, uh, you know, a way before I went to college. So I never really had anything to really kind of grasp onto. And it was just kind of one of those, you know, gut decisions that I went Hmm. with. And, you know, here it is, you know, close to 30 years later. Oh, gosh. Um, and, you know, it's been, you know, and, and this is what I've done in my career really has always been, you know, around, you know, IT and, you know, IT management. So, um, you know, my first job, so I, I've got to kind of continue into my first job because, you know, I, I moved away to go to school and, you know, mm-hmm. I wasn't going to, you know, I had to be able to live in the suburbs. And so uh, I got a job in a call center and as an agent and probably not the best agent, you know, it's, you know, fun job though. Right. Working in a call center, working in a call center is very, I don't think people know it's a very fun job. And this is back in the day too, before, you know, the internet really burst and, you know, like everything that you ever wanted 
online, you know, in PDF form, that didn't really exist. So the company I was taking calls at was a literature distribution center. So they're running printers out the back and mailing stuff out, you know, prospectuses for mutual funds and white papers for semiconductors. And, you know, so these are the things in the Australian Tourist Commission. These are all things that, you know, I'm taking calls for. Mm. And after about two, three months, um, you know, the so give me an idea. Let's just talk about this for a second. This is fun. Right. People's yeah. first jobs. This this might be the new theme that I'm going to go with from now on. Is like, what was your first job? Um, <clears throat> I always worked in restaurants and fry cooks and working in the kitchen. So those jobs always really, you know, they're like they're just really not that great. You know, they're they're grind jobs. You know, and sure. then I got a job in a call center and most people that are working in a call center right now might be laughing at me, but I absolutely loved that job. So what did they do? Sit you down? Like, Hey, here's some training or read this script. And then we're going to send you this and that. I mean, what did it look like for you? Here's a headset. Do you remember the first call you took? First call? No, I I remember that everything is on green screens and you know, so things would, you know, they had this little, I don't know, LED screen on top of the monitor and <laughs> it would pop up a, uh, a DNS number. You'd have to enter your DNS into the green screen and then it would pop your, you know, the script up that you're supposed to go through. The inbound call, like, so the call, the inbound caller ID DNS, and then you'd enter that in and then it would pop like an appropriate script for that or what, or was it yes. like, uh, and the way that we were, you know, set up, we, you know, I mean, granted this is a while ago, so everything was gated. And so, you know, I, I would be gated for, you know, the Australian tourist commission, um, you know, uh, Gosh, I can't even remember some of the mutual funds anymore. So multiple calls, like multiple different inbound, like craziness. Yes. And yeah, you know, a commercial would pop for, you know, call 1-800-AUSTRALIA. Boom. (laughs) You know, and, you know, we'd have a red light go on and everybody would just, you know, be, you know, pounding the keyboards and stuff. So, you know, I lasted at that for probably six months. They, they, They realized that I was going to school to learn technology my first couple of classes were um, on, you know, all analog stuff. And so they, you know, they, they quickly realized that, you know, my time on the call center floor is probably should come to an end quickly. And I went from being a call center agent mm-hmm. to running the ACD. Nice. So it was a. And for a, anyone a out there, uh, you know, IT directors out there that don't have a lot of uh, uh, telco, um, what, what do we call these acronyms, you know? Um, ACD, automatic call distribution. So, anyways, go ahead. So they, they basically took you off of like, dude answering the phones and said, okay, now run the actual PBX and the whole distribution of call flow? Yes. Nice. All the routing, um, and it's not like it was like a like a nice slick, easy to use interface with widgets and everything back then. Like you said, no. the, the internet had just come about, so it was probably like a lot of syntax codes and craziness. And this was a very old, antiquated system in and of itself for being the mid nineties. Must be um, a Nortel, Rockwell Galaxy Seven. Oh, it's awesome. So. <laughs> I'm, you know, have to go up into the, you know, the data center to go enter commands, the syn- the proper syntax, as you said, on teletype machines. So 
it was, you know, just bizarre. Um, you know, we, we worked with Rockwell. They helped us be able to, you know, like pull data off of the phone system every night at midnight and, and whatnot. So that was really kind of my, my first step into systems. I wasn't even in IT yet. I was still attached to the call center. Um, I did that for about 12, 18 months and then started doing... Uh, I was a network technician for the next couple of years until I graduated. So it was a great company. I really enjoyed working there. I enjoyed everything about the job and, you know, and being able to support the call center. And you know, it was... You know, when those bursts would happen, they were exciting. Everybody was engaged. And, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I really appreciated that time. So, kind of a long way to to say that you know I was you know probably a junior in college by the time I actually bought my first PC, which was a Gateway two thousand, and um, that was a big yeah. deal back then. Those computers, I mean, they must have sold so many of those. Oh my gosh, yeah, uh, that was like that was like my dream computer, I guess, when I was in. Let's see how well. What year was that when you had that? Uh, the the gateway i would probably say about 97 all right so that was yeah, all right so i was a junior in high school or something like that and i remember someone having that and i was stuck with my 386 <laughs> i don't even remember what the brand was that i ordered from the magazine <laughs> anyways um side note um by the way that rockwell galaxy 7 how do you sp- i'm trying to find that online right now how do we spell that do you know just as it sounds, um, okay. Rockwell R O C K W E L L Galaxy. Picture this. We we gotta get a picture of this for the cover of this episode. So it, it literally, they. This is what I was told, and this was you know back in mid nineties. This was a more modern version of the very first ACD that they had on exhibit in the Smithsonian. Yeah, I mean, I'm literally seeing black and white pictures of like, you know, like operators talking on the phone and that's in, and like Wikipedia is coming up with ACD and stuff. So I'll, I'll, I'll research this and find it. Um, so anyways, first PC, Gateway 2000, Pentium? Yes, it was a Pentium. Wow. And Windows, did it, did it boot automatically or did you have to type in win.exe and hit enter from DOS? No, it actually booted up. Uh. Wow. So it was probably, well, it had to be 95. Um, so <laughs> no one has any clue. Oh, it's awesome. <laughs> they, 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 what do you mean? What do you mean win.exe? What's auto exec bat? I don't know what you're talking about. Um, okay. So awesome. So keep going. So now you've got this in college. You can now do word processing. Awesome. Dot matrix printer, I'm assuming. Did you have a dot matrix? Yeah, you know, by that by that point, you know, I was um, deciding that the burbs were too boring, and I didn't want to spend all of my time in computer labs. So we, uh, buddy of mine and I, roomed up and got a, a, a an apartment down in Wrigleyville. And so I was driving an hour to and from work and an hour to school. And- that place is crazy, by the way. I'm I'm from Massachusetts, and we've got baseball fans. Okay, we've got Red Sox Us? fans. Okay, but Wrigleyville is like a circus to me. Like when I went there, I was like, this is crazy. I thought people after a Red Sox games were nuts. I was like, well, you guys have, you know, batting cages and just, you just have crazy stuff going on there. I felt like I was in like Dick Tracy, like for in real life. (laughs) It's wonderful. It, uh, (laughs) I can't wait. There's actually a hotel there now. So, um, as soon as, you know, 
Uh, I get tired of the heat down here. One of these days, got to go up and go, uh, you know, catch a game and actually relax back in the neighborhood for once. It's been a, a long time. So let me try to get on topic here because I've had a lot of coffee to drink today. Last time we were talking about a huge disruption right now. I want you to describe that. Because when I talk with some, I was actually talking with an IT director today and he said, yeah, there's, he said the same thing. There's a huge disruption right now and, and we're all going to be like, at, you know, out of jobs. And I was like, what are you talking about? I was like, you need to, you need to take that on. You need to be the leader. It has nothing to do with that. It means you're all going to have more jobs. It means you're going to be in yep. much higher leadership positions. Exactly. You're going to have to have um, a significant level of business acumen that you, that you may not have right now. And maybe that's why uh, he thought, you know, people were going to be out of jobs or something. Maybe it's just a level of business acumen that, that IT directors don't have and or are afraid of. I don't know. But what's your opinion on What's this huge disruption? And I think it's obvious, but I want to hear from your point of view. Absolutely. You know, to me, the, the big disruption is around DevOps and the, the shift of culture in really creating a lot more orchestration and automation and, you know, really, you know, changing the face of engineering, of IT engineering. And, you know, it's everybody's always, you know, had scripts to help them out here and there and stuff. But, you know, especially if things, you know, continue to move more and more cloud and, you know, as clouds expand into multi-cloud and, you know, your everybody's environments keep, you know, going broader and broader, the, you know... It, the, the level of work really changes and the expectations from the business has started to evolve. And without that kind of adoption of this new culture, I really fear that, you know, it, and it's, it, to me, it's not necessarily directors, but if directors aren't pushing their engineers to adapt to this change, then they may be caught in the disruption. So talk to me about adapt. Are you saying not be uh, IT engineering as a as a mindset versus a job? Or uh, IT engineering not tunnel vision but broader vision? Or what's the adapt what's the adopt what's the how do we how are we gonna adapt? I, I think it's all in the approach of what needs to be done. And, you know, it's, you know, the actual facilitation of, you know, what we've all learned in ITIL from, you know, 20, 30 years ago and how to facilitate that in that continuous improvement, the continuous delivery, continuous testing of your environments as you make changes. How can you roll that out? How can you make sure that what you did roll out was successful? Did you meet those those goals? What's success look like to you? Um, meeting the objectives, you know, so you have to have, you know, what are the acceptance criterias for, you know, what we're, we're aiming to go about to make, you know, whatever. Let's use an example. We got to, we got to whip out an example here, a, you know, case study, so to speak. Uh, we need to talk about a specific example here, what the objectives were, uh, how did we know whether we were successful or not? And how did we even choose the right objectives? I mean, sometimes it might be even as deep as saying, what should our objectives be? You know, the, um, 
you know, it, it, it all kind of depends on what the processes are within the department um, and, and, you know, kind of trying to speak a little bit more outside of the mm-hmm. uh, DevOps, you know, but it's, it, it's still one in the same. So, but in, in you know, and in, in, in let me be upfront too, you know, we're still going through our own culture change. You know, we haven't fully adopted DevOps, but, you know, this is a part of our path. This is part of the direction that we want to go in. So, so we're on this journey now. Sorry, go ahead. I just want you to paint a vision for me of, you know, what would happen if you didn't do this type of thing. Um, what does it look like in some organizations that may not be doing this that you can see uh, right now as it's happened? I mean, was it Toys R Us? Was it Sears? What are we doing? Where is the, where is the failure? What, what's the vision? What would it look like? So, okay, let's use a, a Toys, R Us, Toys R Us as our example. Um, and I'm using, I'm going to have to go completely hypothetical, but, you know, if, fine. Um, you know, because I'm sure that these aren't their problems, but, you know, they could have been. And here's how we could, you know, but it, it at least, you know, who's one of the biggest competitors that Toys R Us had? Amazon. Yeah. I, Amazon I use this. basically drove them out of business. Exactly. How are they, how are they ever to keep up? If they didn't, you know, have some sort of model that allowed them to deliver updates to their website, because who are they competing with? They're not, you know, the brick and mortars, you know, help bring them down. But if they were able to get out in front of a delivery model to have a whole new face of their company online, Mm -hmm. expectations of delivery times from their business saying that we need to do this in you know, three months, you know, all right, guys, go ahead. Well, if they actually had something where, you know, the, you know, the, the more minor, I mean, that's more, you know, broader vision kind of Mm -hmm. goal, breaking Mm -hmm. it down into more bite-sized chunks. How Mm -hmm. are we going to accomplish this? Setting up the criteria, what's accepted, what isn't, and, you know, pushing it through your tools that you use to automate. Mm -hmm. Okay, because when I was using this example with my kids the other day, trying to explain, I was trying to explain like at a very simple level, like what a stock is and ownership in a company. And they're like, well, why not just buy stocks? And I was like, well, you have to choose wisely. I was like, because if you (laughs) bought Toys R Us, (laughs) I was like, you'd be done. And they're like, what, Toys R Us? I was like, yeah, think about it. I was like, you've got stores everywhere. You've got money on the shelf. You've got toys on the shelf. Um, that you could buy maybe from Amazon for cheaper. So then people buy them from Amazon and then you've got toys sitting on the shelf that aren't popular anymore. So now you've got things that need to go on clearance. So you've lost money on that. Not to mention the fact that you had to ship it from mm-hmm. somewhere, put it on a truck, bring it there and hire an employee to put it on the shelf and then hire an employee to take it off the shelf and then you got to pay them. I was like, whereas what does Amazon have to do? Drop ship to one like centralized you know, distribution facility um, and on demand to ship like the product when it's asked for to where it needs to go. I was like, you've cut back on all that. They're like, well, you got to pay for the warehouse. I was like, yeah, but so does Toys R Us and many more. <laughs> so um, I, uh, I don't have the actual, like the, the research to back this up, but you know, one of the things I've always been told about Amazon, do you know how many changes they make to their website a day? I have no clue. I just know that 48 cents of like every dollar is spent on Amazon. Something ridiculous. It's over 40 cents. 
The what I was told is that there are over one hundred thousand changes to their website every day. Wow. Do they have a developer per change? Probably not. You know, do they have a team per change? I mean, it's or because I mean that's effectively what you'd have to have. You know, you'd have to have your developer. You have to have a you know a QA tester. You have to have uh your you know your deployment engineer. To everybody has to touch that code before it goes out. Mm-hmm. You know, this is how Amazon is able to disrupt. They're making changes at such a breakneck speed. And I'm not trying to get to a, you know, an Amazon speed. You know, I would be happy with, you know, a couple changes a week at this point, you know, as opposed to, you know, I mean, it's, we, we've all been in the places where it may take six months before we have enough developed to be able to have a release. Can we... The way that Toys R Us operated was more in that six month space. Can we provide some clarity? Um, I don't think they're on a six-month pace. I think they're on like a five-year pace. <laughs> I'll just be honest with you. I think it was more like five years because anyone can get something done in six months can get something done pretty fast. But can we c- provide some clarity around here for some other IT directors, other people in your position that are listening to this? What can they do? Um, is there any way that they can look uh, at their business environment uh, through a different lens um, and or any roadblocks that they might be... Um, experiencing that they need to hurdle or knock down? I, I think trying to find as many as ex- of examples of what to use as a, a, you know, a target or what to, to aim towards as possible. Um, there's a lot of research that's out there on DevOps, um, you know, that will be able to help uh find where, you know, basically where the constraints are, you know, it's um, being able to look at where, you know, where your throughputs are and how much you're able to push through. Is that enough? Is that enough for, you know, uh, for where your business needs to go? Um, I think we talked about the, uh, the, the Gretzky quote. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. If you want to be a good hockey player, don't skate to where the puck is. Go to where the you know the puck is going. You know we need to, you know, work with our business leaders, identify what their targets are, maybe help you know structure some of those targets and improve those ideas together collaboratively, and you know work towards delivering a solution or a series of solutions for enabling that business vision. I think that as time goes by, you know, the the time to delivery is only going to increase. Those, you know, we're going to have shorter and shorter periods of time that IT leaders are going to have to show results. So how do you feel about purchasing equipment? (laughs) Um, In other words, how do you feel about the cloud versus purchasing equipment? Um, Hyperscalers, stuff like that. Do you have any opinions there? Um, And I'm only thinking of that because I can think of, of numerous examples going on right now where people have examples of, well, let's, you know, let's turn up this like hyperscaler or let's use this, you know, data center for this, but that's going to cost us, I don't know, twenty to thirty thousand dollars a month, and uh, where we could just go purchase this equipment, and it's going to cost us, you know, so much less. 
Um, I'm, I'm assuming th- these are some of the decisions that would come up uh, as far as scalability and growth is concerned. Yeah, without a doubt. Um, you know, one of the, I try to remain agnostic as possible um, in that kind of decision. Um, I, after running ACDs, uh, I've got 10, 15 years experience managing data centers. So, you know, that's, you know, you're, you're touching on, you know, one of, you know, my true prides in, in, in my experience. And, mm-hmm. you know, so right now I'm at a point where I have to be able to balance, you know, the, that, you know, that expense up front, or maybe we lease it or whatever that we can draw it out. But mm-hmm. if I have a way to control how much load activity is actually taking place on, you know, I mean, it, you know, we wouldn't, we, we, regardless, it's going to be virtual, right? Mm-hmm. We're going to run it as hypervisors. We're going to be, you know, all VMs, maybe as Docker containers, but, you know, to be able to have that ability to throttle down when you don't have that demand, but also, you know, if your business peaks for some reason and, you know, your you know, it's the middle of the night and you're sleeping and it's something mm-hmm. overseas or it's the middle of their day, something pops and you're not there to increase the throttle on mm-hmm. your equipment on prem. Mm-hmm. If that's the kind of scenario, I would say that, you know, it probably make, probably makes more sense to go to a cloud scenario for something like that. And everything else is kind of gray. <laughs> uh, I don't know what, what's the everything else that's gray that, that worries me, but, um, well, I mean, it's, you have to dig in further is all I really mean to say and not necessarily, you know, it's not a, a black and white cut and dry kind of answer. No, there never is. Uh, you know, you really just have to kind of evaluate, um, and, you know, evaluate your workload. Um, you know, who are your, your, your key partners and you know who, are you saddling up with and what do they have to offer? Mm-hmm. These are all key, you know, pieces of information to be able to make decisions. What about competition? Hopefully you can get to that uh, business outcome before they can. I mean, do you have a way of, I mean, how much of a pulse do you have on your competition and, and kind of what they're doing and maybe some of their, uh, you know, just their operations, their developments, that type of stuff. So AFNI really focuses on differentiating ourselves from our competitors. You know, a lot of our competitors with the same, you know, clients that we have, you know, a lot of the, you know, the big six are, are, you know, mixed into that. Mm -hmm. But I kind of view those as a little bit more of those more low budget, call centers mm-hmm. and you know, they may be able to stand up 20, 30,000 seat call centers in a heartbeat, mm-hmm. but are they increasing the customer's satisfaction to our client? Mm-hmm. That's where we really differentiate ourselves. Mm-hmm. So our market is, you know, a lot smaller. It's a lot, you know, we don't fit, that you know the, the the warranty replace my cell phone market yeah yeah gotcha yes. um n- i hear you 
Um, what do you do? What's your um, philosophy on on team management or or leadership piece? So you've got someone that might um, maybe they just want everything to stay the same. Maybe um, you know I just want to come to work. I just want to do my job, and you know that's it. But how do you encourage this kind of like open open minded, more uh, creative thinking? I guess. And I'm, and I'm asking that for some people that may not have thought that may not have thought of something. Is there any like aha moments that you've had? Any moments where you're just like, this really, this really struck me. This really made a difference. You know, that's something that we are going through right now, and you know, it's, uh, you know, I, I wish it was something as easy as snapping your fingers and everybody has bought in. And mm-hmm. you know, that's certainly not the case, especially the people that. Um, may have a lot of experience, uh, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. the, it's, and it's a challenge. You're absolutely right. It's a great question. Um, and I'm not a big Gary V fan. I'm really not, but I do agree with some of the things you said. And that is, yeah. uh, just fire them immediately. <laughs> it was like, you know, just basically like get rid of, get rid of bad attitude right away. Get rid of people that don't understand the culture and don't get it. Um, but I guess the question is, is how do we first communicate that culture to begin with? Like, what's your idea of, what's your idea of a good culture? Um, one that embraces different ideas that, you know, doesn't just say no to every first comment that, you know, so it doesn't have to be combative to try and implement a new idea just to have a new concept to, you know, to bring about DevOps. Um, It's, you know, there has to be openness and people have to feel comfortable making mistakes. You know, that's one of my biggest things in in leading, parenting, teaching. Mm -hmm. I always say, make new mistakes. You know, learn from those. You know, experience is the name that we give to our past mistakes. I think the key, I think the key thing there is learn because everyone makes mistakes. And, um, I had someone tell me a long time ago, you know, coachability is the biggest thing I look for in a employee team member, a partner, whatever it is. It's just coachability because someone that can't be coached or can't be, you know, can't, they can't learn from mistakes or they can't grow. Um, and that's just so important. I think, I think that's a great, um, I think it's a great point. Great piece of advice. Um, well, thank you so much for being on the show today. It's been, uh, it's been a pleasure. If you had any one final message to deliver to the community out there, uh, just other fellow peer to peer IT directors, what would that be? Always try to always be, always learn. You know, learning is a continuous process in and of itself. Um, And try to, you know, stay current with events and, you know, changes in the industry. You know, it's, we've seen nothing but change in our experience. And I, I imagine, you know, what we talked about today is certainly not going to be the last. So it's certainly something we hear a lot about. We hear that's not a, um, it's a saying that 
I think that someone would say in every industry, right? Stay on top, continuous learning, right? Like you would never go to a doctor that does not <laughs> stay up on, you know, like my dad, my dad, um, he's 84 and he retired really a couple of years ago and he's a surgeon, uh, a urologist of all, of all things too. And I, you know, I asked him like, dad, you know, why'd you retire? Cause I could just tell he didn't want to, right. And he's like, ah, well, you know, people look at me and they see an 82 year old guy and they're just thinking like, you're not operating on me. <laughs> um, but there's no, there'd be no way that he could go with just the information that he learned back in, you know, whatever it was, you know, the fifties or whenever it was that he was going to medical school. Um, however, when life and death isn't on the line, um, I think it's, I think it, it, you can get lazy and I think it's definitely something that people, we, we say, you gotta, con, you know, continually educate yourself. Right. Mm -hmm. But it's, uh, sometimes it can be easier, easier said than people actually do once they get kind of complacent and they get set in their career. So, uh, a very good point, Justin, thanks so much for being on the show, man. I really appreciate it. And, uh, Let's. Uh, I, I look forward to talking again soon when you've made a significant change that has disrupted the marketplace. Absolutely. I look forward to it, Phil. Appreciate it. <laughs>